Welcome to episode 140, would you believe, of A Pint with Shawnee B. Many thanks to all of those people who continue to sponsor the show on Patreon. It is funded by you, the listener. It's not too late to go to www.patreon.com backslash Shawnee B and subscribe for a couple of bucks a month. That's all I ask to keep the podcast up and going. Okay, this podcast uh, today is probably the most controversial guest I've had on the show. So there's a trigger warning built in. Some people don't like talking about the sort of stuff we're going to be talking about today. This podcast is coming out a week after one of the most horrific cases in a long time in Ireland drew to a close with the sentencing of two young boys to long spells in prison for the brutal murder of a young girl by the name of Anna Craigle. These kids killed her when they were 13 and society finds it extremely difficult to come to terms with killers so young. The case threw up an awful lot of disturbing issues relating to misogyny at that young age in boys, entitlement, sexualization of young girls, pornography readily accessible on phones that caused these kids to somehow think they could do the atrocious things they did to this beautiful, vibrant girl who is now no longer with us. And society doesn't like when this happens. There's almost a religious element to it where people believe it is evil and anything that is evil is best not discussed and not opened up and not analysed in the hope that it will never happen again. We hope we will always remember the beautiful pictures of Anna Kriegel and keep in our hearts that our parents have to continue now living on without her. In 1993 in Liverpool, a young toddler by the name of James Patrick Bulger was brutally killed by two 10-year-old boys, Robert Thompson and John Venables. It is a case that has similarly tortured Britain ever since. Thompson and Venables were charged with Bulger's abduction and murder. They were sentenced to long spells in prison. They were paroled in 2010. One of the boys, Venables, John Venables, has been back in and out of prison most recently two years ago for possession of child abuse images on his computer. And the case has prompted widespread debate on how the issue of handling young offenders when they're sentenced, how that all works. My guest this week is Vincent Lamb, a filmmaker who made a short drama film in late 2018 surrounding the James Bulger case. The film got nominated for an Oscar earlier this year and a huge furore opened up primarily around the fact that Vincent, the director, had not contacted James Bulger's mother to let her, let her know that this movie was being made. The movie itself is called Detainment. I have seen it as part of my research for interviewing Vincent. Interestingly, an awful lot of people who panned and there was a 250,000 signature petition to the Oscars asking for it to be removed from competition. I suspect hadn't seen it. There was a lot of bin lidding by the primarily tabloid press and tabloid television where you, if you go on YouTube, you'll see Vincent trying to give his side of the story. But in many, many examples, just getting shouted over with the outrage that he would ever go and make such a film. Here I hope he 
gets time to breathe and give his side of the story. It's suspiciously worrying as well that some of the more high quality newspapers, when they did see his film, when they did interview him, uh, were muzzled by editors for fear of upsetting readership. And we've got to remember that's how newspapers work at the end of the day. They're there to sell things onto which they can put advertising and they don't like causing controversy. The movie itself is extremely powerful. It is a true story. It is basically a movie that looks at what happened in the immediate aftermath of Thompson and Venables being arrested. It centers around two young boys getting grilled by police officers as to why they did it and how it happened. Pointedly, there is no violence in the movie. There is no reenactment of the murder. Many of these were claimed at the time to be in the film. They're not in the film. And the film makes you think. It makes you think how young people today, or even back then, could get to a point where they could commit such heinous crimes against other members, younger, vulnerable members of society. And we need to, in my view, keep having those conversations. Vincent Lamb has been through the ringer on this. He has become very famous, as is the movie for it, which he admits. I think in hindsight, he has a lot of remorse, which you will hear, uh, and no animosity towards the Bulger family. And I think he tries to set the record straight in our interview. As I said, some people don't like listening to things like this. So if you don't, then it is time to switch off. But I think conversations like these are important. And we will always remember James Patrick Bulger and Anna Craigle, I hope, in our hearts as people who have suffered unnecessarily at the hands of perhaps flaws in our society. So I give you Vincent Lamb. Okay, so that was a background to Oscar-nominated movie Detainment. I have the director, Vincent Lamb, with me. Thank you for coming on my podcast. How are you, buddy? I'm good. Nice to meet you, Sean. So let's wade into it. What are we now? Six months after the, the controversy that, that you know came up around this film. Talk to me about how that looks from this juncture back, from your point of view as the director. Well... You know, like nothing really can prepare you for you know a quarter of a million people <laughs> hating you Bane for your blood. <laughs> yeah, and pretty much all of them just hadn't seen the film, and they had a different film in their head. They would, they would have read um, you know a tabloid article or or something, and there was so much misinformation that went out about the mm. film. I think people thought that there was graphic violence in it, or that it reenacted the murder yeah. somehow, uh, and it doesn't do that, you know, and. Um, what is the message in your film? Because I watched it this morning and I didn't feel it was controversial. We'll talk about the, 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 the elephant in the room, which is that you didn't contact James Bulger's mother. But like, what was the message that this movie is sending out? So, I mean, I would say that it shows John Venables and Robert Thompson for the first time ever as two 10-year-old boys and mm. not these evil monsters that are in people's imagination, you know? Mm. But, I mean, that's still the popular opinion. People couldn't really cope with the idea that these were two 10-year-old boys that had done it, and the only way they could make sense of it was if they were evil. So now the popular opinion is that those two boys were simply evil, and anybody who, who tries to understand them or says anything other than they were evil gets attacked for it. Um, you get attacked for being too sympathetic to the boys. 
if you just dismiss children as being evil, it's very likely that something like this will happen again, because the only way you can prevent it is if you understand the cause of it. I think the first step is to acknowledge that they were human beings and children, you know, so it, it shows them as they were. And I also got this other element to it, which I don't think came out, is that they also had parents who had to come in to those meetings with the police uh, finding out that your 10-year-old has killed a baby can't be anything but horrific. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things, you know, when I read it, that um, stood out. There's this kind of idea that, you know, that it's wrong to acknowledge the pain of the killers' families. I think that's a very archaic way of looking at things. I started to see this as a tragedy not just for one family, but for three families. That's yeah. not a popular opinion to have. The first person to say it was David James Smith, who wrote the book uh, on the case The Sleep of Reason. He met with the families and all the detectives. I worked very closely with the police. It's the most comprehensive um, record of, of what happened, mm. you know, and, and it tells it accurately and honestly. And, and David has become a, a really great friend of mine now since he's a big supporter of the film. And it's great, you know, he's introduced me to people involved in the case. There's Malcolm Stevens, who knew and worked with John Venables. Malcolm basically oversaw the whole detention and rehabilitation of, of John Venables and, and Robert Thompson. So he, he watched them grow up. And he, he called me after he saw the film and he said, Vincent, there's nobody on the planet that knows those two boys better than, than he does. He said... The film does what he never thought was possible, that it accurately shows who these two boys were. Mm. And um, it was the most amazing compliment I, I could ever have imagined yeah. or endorsement of the film. Why do and you it, think they did it? I, I, I don't believe that anyone is, is just born evil. You know, yeah. I, I don't think you're going to find the answer in the Bible, but I think if you look into their backgrounds, you'll get a much better mm. idea of what could have led two 10-year-olds to do this. So look at Robert's family first. The mother was beaten mercilessly by the father. Uh, the father left the family home when Robert was five. The mother couldn't really cope. She tried to commit suicide with pill overdoses twice. That didn't work. Uh, so then she resorted to alcohol as a means of escape. She'd spend all her time down in the pub. As a result, the whole Thompson household was bedlam. It was six boys. The oldest would beat up the younger one. If Robert was beaten up by his older brother... He would take it out on his younger siblings, little Ben, who was only three years old, around the age of, of James Bulger. So when they're in the shopping centre that day, Robert says, let's get a kid, I haven't hit one in ages. And that's where it stems from. He had this kind of tough guy persona, which he created for himself, and he felt like he had to live up to that. But John was different in, in many ways. You know, John was weak, but desperate to impress his tough friend, Robert. Mm. He didn't want to look weak in front of Robert. And that's what propelled it. That's what moved it on. And psychologists use this as a case study because they see the same toxic relationship happen again and again, not always with the same results. But it's it's that dynamic between the two boys which caused it to yeah. happen. It wasn't just their backgrounds. You know, if John had been stronger, then maybe it wouldn't have happened. You know, and if I actually was of the opinion that it was going to be more a little bit about borderline police coercion to try and get sentence that the police were behaving perfectly normally and and, and, and ethically as far as I can yeah, see oh, in, your I mean, movie, they, in your movie you know? really the, I mean the police dealt with those two boys with such care you know yeah. before during and after the interviews and I, I really admire 
how they dealt with it. They were so gentle when they questioned mm. the boys. And it was something that hadn't been done before. You, the detectives, you know, would have been experienced in interviewing children, but they would always be interviewing children as victims um, yes. or maybe witnesses, but never, never, yeah, yeah perpetrators. Yeah, so it was very interesting. Yeah, to and see I mean, the performances from the two boys was spellbinding. I mean, I don't know how, I mean, that, that it was just, particularly John, when he was crying for his mum and the way they, the two of them, you just, you suddenly see their ten. You know, you suddenly see that these are little kids. Yeah. And I suppose for the police as well, as you said, like, I don't even know as a cop how I'd be able to get, like, I, I would not be able to believe that there, this this was possible for these two lads to be doing, to be thinking that someone else came along or someone. And it just scared, it scared nation. Did you, have you had any feedback from those two families? From the Venables and yeah, Thompson families? Yeah. No. Because I, I know haven't any they haven't really them, been know. rehabilitated, right? There's been problems since um, they got out of prison, uh, one of them, I think, right? Well, yeah, John is back in prison for another offence, and, and there's, there's some, is very, there, very little there's sympathy some child for porn thing going on Yeah, as well. it was um, p- possession of child pornography, and it's the second time he's offended, you know, so he's he's got two convictions for that now. I've talked to people who, who knew them. I'm talking yeah. to Malcolm. Yeah. Stevens was very interesting. But watching them grow up, well, I probably, <laughs> I mean, one thing he said was um, that neither of them could ride a bike, you know, and he said Robert was given a bike for his 12th birthday birthday when he was in his secure yeah. unit and uh, they had to put stabilizers on it. I, I, it just struck me as like something which was interesting, which stood out, yeah. you know, at 12 years old that they couldn't ride a bike. What um, was their incarceration like? Were they in a special prison or how, how were they, so they, how did they grow up? They're called secure units in the UK, you know, and uh, they're actually looked after very well. And one of the, you know, main criticisms, you know, that I know Denise Fergus has has always said is that she feels like they were given too good an upbringing, that they they had a better upbringing than a lot of children in Liverpool. Right. um, Because they were allowed to decorate their own rooms and, and, and stuff, you know. But they were taken away from their families, from their parents, to go through a door, they'd have to wait for one door to be locked behind them and then go through another. I mean, I mean, anybody who says that isn't um, punishment, yeah. I, I would say, well, why place? don't you do it? You know, no, no, they were in different places. Have yeah. they? Lo- have they? Did they ever kind of? Have they ever contacted each other since you, do you, that you know of? Or no, no, they haven't. No, I I talked to Malcolm about this. And do they still? They, they've never. Yeah. Question each other's stories, or did that did that all sort of resolve? As, um, so. It took years of therapy before Robert admitted having anything to do with, with the murder, right. the crime. I mean, he had always said, he put all the blame on John. He, you know, he admitted to being there, but he said, you know, it was John who, who did the attack. You know, through years of therapy, he eventually admitted his own part in the crime. And there, there was a Channel 5 documentary there this year. It played, you know, parts of his parole statement before he was released, and and he acknowledged it, you know, and it was it was very interesting to see, you know, how how he had changed from age ten to age eighteen when he was being released. How did you feel he? What what sort of a person did you feel you were listening to when you heard him? Um, that must have been kind the of parole. Weird. Yeah, his the parole. parole sta- yeah. I I I felt like he. he he had acknowledged what he had done and 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 did feel remorse. At that stage, but that you know that was only very recently. You know when that came out. I mean, I had made the film before I'd seen that and 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 read his. You know what he says in his parole hearing was that he felt that you know there was no way he could get through to the family of James Bulger that they would always think he's just saying this to 
because you you know it's the right thing to say or, or something yeah. or you know but but that they would never take sincere. it sincerely yeah, you know yeah. um let's talk about the, the the main criticism that you received for not contacting james's mother yeah give me your thinking behind that now, so this you know i i thought for a long time uh, you know about how to how to go about making this film you know i was 12 when it happened i grew up hearing about it you know it was it was a huge story at the time you couldn't yeah. have missed it i was always told at the time well they were evil and, and that's yeah. why they did it and then when I was older I, I wanted to look into it more I wanted to know I wanted to know how two ten-year-old boys could kill a toddler and, and that's what started me you know reading about it it started with one book it started with David James Smith's book The Sleep of Reason which is an incredible book you know I read Ralph Bolger's book and Denise Ferguson's book and they're heartbreaking you know yeah. um, and I've always had so much sympathy for the Bolger family like so it's very hard when, when I hear people say you know, that, that I don't empathize with them because I've made this film. You know, I, I do and I always have, um, always will. But I also saw something else. That there was a human story beneath all of this. And, and these were boys and not these evil monsters that are, you know, in people's heads. Mm. And I, I couldn't get it out of my head. After I had read the transcripts, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I, I was like, wow, there's this this whole story that people don't know about and and isn't being told did you know then what so now it's starting to germinate as i'm going to make a film You're, so you have a film background or was it you know had you, had you made other movies i, I, oh, I was, yeah i mean i i studied film i've been making films film since lot, i was right. like 10 years old or something i mean my first films i would cast my parents in them and shoot them on super eight yeah, yeah. god bless them they did it you know <laughs> You know, I, I thought I was making a masterpiece at the time. They knew it was going to be terrible, but they did it anyway. I mean, I, I started doing drama classes, I, but the only reason I did it was to get actors to work for free in my <laughs> terrible short films. And then I, I won an award for one of them when I was a teenager at the Fresh Film Festival, which is brilliant, and it's still running. Lovely awards and, that they made. Yeah, and it's a yeah. great thing. It's like for young filmmakers... I think it's for under 18s. I remember just how encouraging that was at the time that, you know, to have your work screened and, and to get recognition for something you've mm -hmm. made is a really great feeling. And, and it's so important, I think, for young filmmakers like to encourage them then because it, it made me want to keep making films and make more films. And uh, then I, I, I studied film in, in the National Film School now in Dunleary. After that... I realized it's it's actually incredibly difficult to get paid to direct. And you come out into the world and, you know, before this, you know, you have all these ideas about what you're going to do. And then it's suddenly really hard. You know, I, I, I moved into producing, um, freelance producing. I, I worked with uh, T.G. Cahar for a few right. years. I was producing music videos, like for Irish bands commissioned by Sony Music, Universal Music. But that doesn't really pay the bills. You know, yeah. it was big gaps between jobs I was like well what else am I good at you know and uh, I always loved casting I, I started I was casting a lot of shorts in film school then started working as an agent for child actors now so over the course of maybe the last 14 years I've, I've held you know thousands of auditions a, a lot of them with children and I found it's great practice as a director it's it's a great way of finding out what works and what doesn't work and, and to discover effective ways of directing child actors. So then, when after I had read those transcripts of detainment, I, I, I was always imagining how that would be done as a film because child actors are, are incredible, but I think what was being written for them 
I, I think they're, they're more capable than what was being written right. for them. But it's an extremely challenging uh, acting task so for those two yeah, boys. Those two roles, yeah. I, I don't think I've seen child performances at that no. level before. Eli Solem, who plays John, and Leon Hughes, who plays Robert. And they're just both you know, incredibly I know. talented. I know. Actors, they're extraordinary. I mean, that's actually kind of a, that was a, that's one of the most disarming things about the film because it's it's straight. You you start thinking it's a documentary. It to me, feels, it's so well done. It feels like that 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 or that, that they are actually the guys. You know, like you're in the room, yeah. yeah. And and like one of the like people ask me, you know, why did I make it as a drama if it's entirely factual? And it is entirely factual. It's a true story as opposed to being based on a true story. Everything in the film is entirely factual. There's no embellishments whatsoever. So the reason I wanted to make it as a drama and, and not a documentary uh, is because you can do something different with a, with a drama that you can't do with a documentary. You can put the viewer in the room where they feel every moment, every feeling, as if it was their own. And I think it helps a viewer see something from a different perspective. Did you know, though, that you were playing with something that was going to be sensitive and difficult for you to get off the ground and get made or, or was this oh, yeah. pro- like so of course. We, we were starting this um, conversation about when you got to the point where you were about to make it and this whole thing about you didn't contact anybody um, from the Bulger side was that deliberate or how to, let's let's hear your side of this story because so, it is the thing yeah I mean it's it, I, I knew you know that it was an enormously sensitive case and I was always you know very aware of the great private pain that the family have you know but there's also this enormous public interest you know I, I i wanted to make a film which showed a, a balanced view and, and an impartial film and i was always trying to think of the right way to go about doing it and i thought so long about getting in touch with the family at the bulger family i i figured they they wouldn't have wanted a film like this to be made but if they did give permission there would have been enormous pressure to tell the story the way they wanted it to be told and then you're telling a version of the truth. Uh, you know, I felt it, it wouldn't change what would be in the transcripts, but it would most likely change what would end up in the film. And it wouldn't be an impartial film. You're, you're telling it from one point of view mm. again. And, you know, everybody sees this case through the eyes of the Bulger family, of course, but I, I think there's more than one perspective. And if you're going to talk to one family, I think you should talk to all three families. So, What about the thought that you could have done that? Well, I mean, it, there's, I, there's still no way of getting in touch with the right. Venables family or the Thompson family. But, but even if we did, I mean, they, they can't stop you making it. So it was it. So, it was well, no, but like it wouldn't have. I mean, the transcripts were there. Yeah. So talking to the families isn't going to change what's what's in those transcripts. So instead, I decided, you know, to make everything entirely factual. I took those transcripts like a bible. It, the, the film is almost entirely verbatim. There's only a few yeah. scenes which happen outside of the interviews, mm. which we didn't have transcripts for. So in terms of you know permission, I mean, I, I didn't ask for permission for that reason. But then I also thought about just getting in touch with the family and to let them know mm. this was happening. And, and that was always my intention. I, we, I wanted to get a, a UK broadcaster for the film first, and then I would have let the family know that this is coming up, you know, once we had a date. But I didn't want people to be given an opinion about the film before they had seen it. And, and that was always my worry that, you know, if, if we got in touch with them too soon, it would become a tabloid story. And people would be told, you know, this is a terrible film before they, before they yeah. had seen it. And now that's what's happened anyway. I was going to say the that. Because yeah. the Oscar nomination kind of messed all of that up. Because people just started hearing about the film much sooner than I had intended for them mm. to hear about it. The, it was only six months from the first film festival screening when it was nominated for an Oscar. Mm. 
which is very rare. It's nearly unheard of. You know, the other films which were nominated had been screening at festivals for 18 months up to yeah, two years, yeah. and then they do their, their Academy run. So everything just happened so quickly. And if I, if I had known it was going to be nominated for an Oscar, I think I would have got in touch with the family yes. to let them know. I, I wouldn't have wanted them to hear about it like that. So, so one, little, one little segue here, because I was talking with, with someone about this last night, because I was, I, I was actually trying to work out how to do this interview with you today. And I said to someone, like, you know, making of a murderer, okay? Blockbuster Netflix show, two parts, or maybe three parts now, I think. There's a victim, a victim who's been brutally sexually beaten to death in that series. Is it common practice for that for for those producers to go and say to this family that by the way because because they were they were actually saying yeah. their point of view was your man did it Stephen whatever his name is he did it he's been put away closure and mm. now it's all opening up again and we have we one of the biggest genres is crime and and well, murdering and all this and every knife has a victim at the end of it so I'm I'm, I'm just I was trying to get my head around was I mean, it in too that case, yeah, I mean the Holbach family yeah they're they're not happy with making a murderer either. You know, they no. strongly believe that Stephen Avery was the yeah, killer yeah. still. You know, um, I, I, I think it was responsibly made as well. Yes. Um, you know, but I think if you are telling a true story, it does come with, with huge responsibility. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say that you know, anyone should be allowed to make anything any way they like it. And you should, you know, ensure that you're telling the truth if you're, if you're going to tell a, a story about... A true crime or, or yeah. a family or... I mean, my point is that it's like this sort of genre is everywhere. I mean, it's not just like you, you're the first guy to come up with, oh, look, here's a reenactment of testimony that, that criminals gave in a police station. Okay, in this case, they're very young criminals, which is maybe an issue. But it is everywhere, right? There's, there's guys on death row who committed things or they're innocent. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, it's, like, it's, it's not a new thing. Part of the debate, you know, or, you know, surrounding the controversy was... Who has the right to tell true stories, and where do you draw the line? You know that, that they were, you know, they were saying certain stories shouldn't be told. Was the argument, you know, that was the reason why people wanted it to be removed yeah. from the Oscar shortlist. Like a quarter of a million people signed a petition to have it removed, and you know, the Academy said to me, they said they're not asking for this to be removed for any eligibility requirements. They want it removed because they're saying that certain stories shouldn't be told and they said that goes against everything that they stand for it's like witchcraft or something so, there's a religion kind of thing going on yeah, no, I, I mean, so I don't I wouldn't say there's a line I think if you draw a line and say well these stories can be told and these ones can't yeah. somebody else will draw another line I know so you know I, I would say there shouldn't be any line but, but there should you know be responsibility and, and you know if you're making a film like that you should you should make it in a responsible way I would say I'm hearing in hindsight you would have contacted her, am I hearing that right? In hindsight, so I, 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 I never wanted the family to, you know, find out about it this way. My, my plan was to always get in touch with the family, but, but I wanted to make sure people would be able to see the film. Mm. I didn't ever want it to be a situation where, you know, people will form an opinion and then not want to see the film. And yeah. that, that's now exactly what's happened. So right. it's, it's confirmed my decision. Yeah. You know, because it, I think if we had got in touch with the family too soon and let them know about it, it would have been front page of the Daily Star, the Sun, the Mirror. 
Was he, and was, people would be told what to think of this case. And then it would probably be hard to even get it into film festivals. Right. There was one festival in the UK. They got so much hate mail. Um, people saying they're going to boycott the festival if they showed the film. They ended up dropping it. You know, that's probably what would have happened if we got in touch too soon. I, I know it seems insensitive not to contact the family, but I couldn't see any other way of doing it. I, I wanted people to see the film for it to go out on a UK television station and then talk about it. And then I, I knew it was always going to, that there was always going to be a, a backlash, but there would be no question of what's in the film and what's not in the film. Mm. Whereas now the tabloids have written things about the film which simply aren't true. People have read these articles, they're reading it and they're believing it and they're outraged because of it. But I would be too if, if I was believing that. Mm. Uh, so I understand where they're outraged. This morning, I watched the movie and I was slightly in trepidation about it. And I came out the other end very unnerved, very upset, very, you know, that's why I asked you at the top of this podcast, what was your intention? To me, I, I came away going, I still don't know how those two boys did this. And there, and I, 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 it's not that I had sympathy. I just went, how the hell did that happen? And, it's, and the, the whole world doesn't want... Sometimes when we see something horrific, we want to actually bury it. And we don't, we, we said this actually, almost like this never happened. This could, we, humankind or unkind is not like this. And so yeah. do not dig it up again and keep it buried. And there is a slight, slightly religious connotation to that. And there's a slightly satanic kind of weird, you know, some of the, some of the, the great documentary about the three boys up in the, in the south of, of America who. Oh, the, west of Memphis. West of Memphis. Yeah. yeah. Those Memphis three. Like, and that yeah. was, that was. That was just mayhem. Not true either, you know? But that's the other sort of thing. I can imagine people going, don't go near that because that's all sort of the devil's work or whatever. So that's what I took out of it. And I I thought it was a very powerful movie. Were were you surprised that it got nominated for an Oscar? Um, Well, I think the most surprising thing was when it made the shortlist of 10 films. Mm. I I really didn't think we were going to make it because I, I just figured, you know, people hadn't been hearing enough about the film. It hadn't... You know, screened, uh, you know, the same festivals, you know, a lot of the other films mm. had, like, you know, Fove had one at Sundance, for example. I didn't know people were watching it, even like Academy voters, because they don't actually have to watch everything on, I know, yeah. on the on 50%, the right? Yeah. You know, well, I mean, the way they do it, I think they do rotate. Everything gets watched, but, you know, every voter doesn't have to watch everything. Yeah. Everything. So, yeah, when we made the shortlist, I mean, that, that was probably the most surprising thing. That, that took my breath away. You're my you know? second uh, Irish Oscar-nominated short filmmaker, Michael Cray from The Crush on, oh, right. on my show before. The hoopla then starts coming in on top of you, does it? Uh, the excitement of having to go to the Oscars. And what was all that like? Ooh, well, I mean, to be honest, it, people say to me, like, oh, you were nominated for an Oscar. That must have been great. But it was, like, it was also the most stressful time of my life. Mm. Talk was, to me about that. Did you get into a... I mean, you were a figure... You were a hated figure. Mm. I mean, like it was after we made the shortlist, I had started doing interviews and uh, on TV, and and I, you know, I didn't actually feel like, like we needed to, because I was like, well, we've made the shortlist now, so, you know, voters will, mm. will watch it. They have to watch the 10, mm. you know, so... Um, you know, I, I kind of felt like, you know, maybe we don't need to do this, you know, but my publicist checked in with Good Morning Britain. They said, oh, tell them not to worry. We're just going to be talking about the film and we won't be doing anything negative. You've seen yeah. the Good Morning Britain yeah. interview. <laughs> so you were hijacked. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was it was a 
full on attack. But you were not expecting this. They were asking questions. They they barely let me answer. Um, But, you know, but they also framed it in a way, you know, where you can tell people, you know, how to think about something. You know, if you Mm -hmm. compare that to the Sky News interview that I did, Mm -hmm. you know, a few weeks previously, Mm -hmm. where Gamal handled it in a in a, you know, a very delicate way as well, you know, but wasn't telling people what to think, how Mm. to think, you know. So after that interview, all hell broke loose. When I got back to my hotel, within that time, the Liverpool Echo had already uh, published an article online, which they had ready to go, but they were waiting for the Good Morning Britain interview to happen. Mm -hmm. So this was published, and they had one of the detectives involved in the case came out strongly you know against the film but he hadn't seen the film at the time he was basing it on on a clip that he saw i think on on good morning britain so he said i would question the accuracy of the film which gives the tabloids you know just enough to say the film is inaccurate yeah Yeah. and that's what it became you know so you know but i have huge respect you know for for the detective who, who said that um albert kirby's his name you know i i i'd always watched his interviews and and read everything He'd written on the case. So it was hard to hear that from, from somebody that I had so much respect for. And I asked in my statement, you know, for him to, you know, watch the full film and, and to re- review what he said. And, and you know, he did. He's, he's such a respectable person. He was on BBC afterwards and, and they asked him, have you seen the film? Is it accurate? And he said, I have seen the film. And he says, yes, it is historically accurate, but... He, he still felt it should be withdrawn from the Oscars because he just felt it was causing so much distress, uh, which he felt was unnecessary to the family. So, you know, I understand Did that. Did you ever and at any point think about that? Um, about, about withdrawing about, it? Yeah, because I mean, you're, you're, I, one thing I wanted to ask you, the other question that I, I asked you earlier is like, you're not a guy who's famous. You're not a guy who's in the line. Like, you're not a guy who's splashed all over the newspapers and you're becoming mm. this figure of hate. You're a very confident guy and you're also, I think, you're, you're, you, you seem to me to be very independent. You're, you're in yourself. You're, you know, you're kind of... But, but, but it can't have not had its toll in terms of... So, I mean, I think if I had withdrawn it, I think it would be admitting that there's something wrong with the film or something. And I wouldn't change anything with the film. Mm. Everything in the film... Is true. Mm. If there was something inaccurate or something, or, or somebody said, you know, it, it shouldn't be considered for this reason, and therefore, yeah. you know, it goes against the eligibility of Oscar consideration, mm. then I would withdraw it. Uh, and first of all, I, I, I don't know if I had the power to withdraw it. I, 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 don't, these I don't know if I even could it. have. Yeah. But if I, if I had withdrawn it, then people would be saying, well, it shouldn't be shown anywhere. Mm. Look, he even withdrew it himself. So it's like saying, you know, you should burn every copy of, of a book. Um, so how was your I mental, how was your mental health at the time, though? Like, was it was it? It must have been. It must have been a, a very hard time for you to to get up in the morning and to, to <laughs> you know. To... <laughs> I wasn't getting a lot of sleep, so right. um, no, I was I was up uh, up from the night before because um, you know we we were also running a, a whole Oscar campaign mm. and. Um, working with the publicists, but then also trying to deal with what the tabloids were saying. And this petition, people who were, you know, asking for it to be withdrawn, and they were outraged about it, but they weren't just asking for the film to be withdrawn from the Oscars. They wanted it to be removed. They wanted to ban it. I couldn't understand why. I mean, there's no violence in the film whatsoever. It doesn't reenact mm. the murder. It just didn't make sense to me. Like, um, Were you surprised that Hollywood stuck by it? 
Um, Given no, the climate. I mean, when I, when people, even when the tabloids were saying the film is this horrible film yeah. and, and that there's violence in it, I, I actually wasn't worried because I knew they were watching it. I was like, well, Academy voters can watch it and decide for themselves. Mm. And, and they did. I mean, that was before it was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. This whole controversy yes, happened. Yeah. So I, I knew they could, they could watch it and I trusted them to watch it and make up their own minds. Mm. I mean, perversely, the Ferrari, like any of these things, is, I don't like saying good for the picture, but I mean, it's suddenly, it's put it out there and it's, it's in the conversation and it's, you know, it's, it's more publicity than a publicist could get for it. I mean, you don't want to look at it in that regard, but in terms of, I mean, well, you were all over the news for like a period of weeks and yeah, it made it, you famous. Certainly, you know? yeah, it's, it's probably Our the most interview. talked about short film yeah, ever, ever made. Ever made, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is um, something, but, you know, for all the wrong reasons. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. And, and I would like people just to watch it and then form their own opinion. Yeah. It's difficult now because, you know, people think that, you, you know, that if they show it, broadcasters, you know, might not show it because they're afraid that it could be construed as being unsympathetic to the Bolger family. Mm. And that's why a lot of the broadsheets wouldn't write about it. Mm. So after after the Good Morning Britain interview and all the tabloid coverage and Twitter went crazy, my publicist said, you know, I have a journalist from The Times who wants to talk to you. And she came to my hotel the next day uh, with a photographer and they were going to run this as a feature. She said to me, um, she said, Vincent, I've seen your film. Everything that's been reported about it is untrue. She said, there's, there's no violence in your film. Mm. And she said she was going to give her own opinion in the piece, but she also wanted to talk to me. I, I sat there, I talked to her for about 90 minutes, and the photographer did photos, and this was going to run in The Times mm-hmm. in London, which I felt was going to speak louder than any of the tabloids. Yeah. So I wasn't too worried about what they were saying on the weekend because I knew this was coming out on Monday. Then it wasn't in the paper on Monday, and I, I checked with my publisher, and I was like, "What? Why isn't it in the paper?" And she says, "Let me check." So she checks in with the journalist, and then comes back to me and says, "Yeah, they're not going to run it." And I was like, "What do you mean they're not going to run it?" And she said, "They're burying it." And I was like, "Are are you kidding me?" I was like, "Catherine, this is the one thing that can save us." Um, and and she said the editor told the journalist that um. They didn't want to run it because they were worried that it could be construed as being unsympathetic to the Bulger family. Mm. And it gave me that sense of just how enormously sensitive this case is when the most respected broadsheet in the country mm. won't run a story they know to be true mm. because they're afraid of getting a backlash from it. Mm. You know, And the, the broadsheets like to blame the tabloids for... People having this long-held perspective um, of you know, you know, just you know, demonizing those boys, calling them evil. But if they don't stand up to the tabloids, then it will never change. Mm. That opinion will never change if they if they don't stand up to it. Mm. And then after that, she asked uh, Andrew Pulver from the Guardian, film reviewer, would he do a review of the film? He said, "Yeah, I'd be happy to." And he came back and said, "Sorry, I can't, I can't run it because he had written a favorable review." He was told by his editor, we can't run that because it could look like we're being unsympathetic to the Bulger family. Mm. So he then decided to um, write it as a news piece where he's taking quotes from the family and quotes from me. And he didn't give his opinion in the piece, which I thought was bizarre. I, I, I could not understand why no one would write about it. Everyone was turning it down. People were just afraid to write anything positive yeah. about the film. 
Yeah, it was. Did it you was feel only, it was? It was when the New York Times eventually started writing about it. They wrote a, a big feature in the New York Times about my film, which was amazing. The headline was "Why Britain Is Outraged About an Oscar-Nominated Short Film." It was so intelligently written, but not taking sides. It was a U.S. journalist who was able to see it and could see why people were afraid to say anything positive about the film in the mm. UK. And it was only after that that broadsheets came in and started started writing more nuanced articles. And they now they've they've written about the film yeah. and they they've given their opinion. The broadsheets have the tabloids have not changed. Where is that netted out generally now? I mean, the furore has died down. Yeah, it's it's died down. Yeah, to the point where I, I almost feel like a normal person again. You know. <laughs> and did you get depressed or down, or did you get worried for um, your safety or anything like that? Did any of that? Well, it was like a, a fight, you know. But I always thought, you know, if somebody prints something that isn't true, they'll correct it. That was I naively. I think I always thought, you know, I, I just never expected people to just make things up about the film. Nothing can prepare you for that. But I always figured, you know, well, we can turn it around. And but at some stage, you have to just stop fighting. You know, things have been left on, you know, a, a bad note in terms of the UK tabloid coverage. And, and a lot of people have formed an opinion about the film, but will never watch it. So that is hard to deal with. But I think if they had just seen the film, it might have made them, you know, just think a little bit more about that case or want to look into it or research it for themselves. Is it interesting as well the way the books can be made? So I mean, the books have got yeah, all of that in it. Yeah, I asked David this question. I said, when you wrote your book, because I mean, there's there's nothing in the film which isn't in yeah. David's book, you yeah. know. Um, but you know, interestingly, you know, the transcripts are also in in Ralph's book. There's nothing in Ralph Bolger's yeah. book, James's father. There's nothing in the film which isn't in his book, either. The thing is, I think people aren't great readers, <laughs> but they'll watch a film. Or, or like I said earlier, you know, when that it's a drama and not a documentary, it it does something different. Where it, for the first time, it puts the viewer in the room, and the viewer feels every moment, every feeling like it's their own. But as human beings, we're conditioned to feel sympathy if we see a a child crying. Yes. Um. But if that child happens to be Killer. somebody you hate, mm. if that's John Venables, and and you find yourself actually feeling something for him that doesn't sit right with people no. because it goes against everything they've they've always you know believed and 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 even for me i mean the the film is not me expressing my opinion i i would say the film goes against my whole opinion it challenges my own opinion mm. and that's how i know it's true we're in an outrage culture right now where the deplatforming goes on in American colleges because somebody decides that person shouldn't be speaking. I mean, I, I make the point of, like, should a Nazi be allowed to go up and speak in front of students in UCD? My view is yes, because I'd like the students in UCD to tear him down or, and understand exactly what Nazism is or fascism or whatever. You, we have to condition ourselves against hate speech, and we can't, we, we, we're getting a lot better at that, I think. But when you look at what happened with the tabloid press and the, the tabloid television, for want of a better word, if we could call Good Morning Britain that, and then the burial of news or opinion on someone watching your film and who's, who's, who's a respected journalist of film critic, it kind of, oh, it doesn't all go well for other things in life. You wonder yeah, what I, else, well, you, wonder, you wonder what I else I was is. amazed to see it firsthand, yeah. And I, I would never have believed it if I hadn't um, seen it. You know, people will suppress 
information like yeah. that and and won't do but that that's how I was just amazed how enormously sensitive this case is it's it's that toxic yeah. that they won't print something they know to be true yeah. because they're afraid of getting a backlash i i just i honestly couldn't believe it uh, and well, and the tabloids have innocent. never changed. Their you, you might be interested in this. Somebody mm. once asked me what, what Rupert Murdoch's business was, in a sentence, mm. the News International, right? News Corp and all that. And you can talk about entertainment, or you can talk about news, or power, or whatever. And this guy said to me, Rupert Murdoch is in business of making things onto which you can put an ad. Yeah, right. And that's at, the end of the de- <laughs> at the end of the day, Newspapers are in business to sell copies to people. Yeah. And when they sell enough copies to people, advertisers put ads in the newspaper. And people want to read roughly what they believe. They want their yeah, own. Yeah, they, they give people to be, what they want you know, to hear. That's why left wing papers, right wing papers, you've got News of the World, you've got yeah. you know, the old News of the World, the Sun. And then you have this kind of one of a kind case which I mean the, the only other one I would put in there is is um, Madeline McCann I mean it's it's those are the two that just uh, maybe the Millie Dell or stuff like that but then yeah. the, 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 there's just this every now and then something comes out yes there's always a child involved yes something terrible happens and everyone goes surely we are not this and they use words like evil and all this kind of stuff yeah and you're in that maelstrom yeah you, you probably don't that probably wasn't even a question like no you know, <laughs> it was just kind of but, observation yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm having it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a strange place to, to, to be, you know, to, yeah, to kind of. How about this before we finish? What would you say to the Bulger family? Oh, you know, I, I did. I wrote a letter back to Denise and I tried to explain our, the reasons for making the film. And, and, you know, that, that it was, it was never intended to cause them any distress and uh, you know, I'm I'm really you know so sorry that it has because I I've, I've always had so much sympathy for them. I, I don't feel any animosity towards the Bulger family whatsoever. You know, and I never. I mean, by the you way, know, I would say just having someone who who's giving you a review of your film, having just watched it two hours ago. I thought the Bulger situation was tragic and it was terrible what happened to, him. and there was no sense in that movie that there was any part of it was trying to tell me to be sympathetic to these guys who did this. It was more about this, just me trying to understand how that could happen and how they quickly descended back into boys and how boys possibly, when they're out together, even though they're 10, think they're older and think that they can knock around like adults and maybe they've had very bad parenting and all this stuff. That's where I went. And I went, a poor kid was a victim in this. And I will always remember that poor kid as the victim. And I think that... Yeah, is what your movie's about. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I've I've always, you know, grown up looking at it through, you know, the eyes of of the Bulger family, but only through those eyes. Most of the world will will, will just look at it through their eyes, and they're they're good eyes, you know. I mean, of, course. of course, their perspective, you know, will, will never change, you know, because and and I would never expect the Bulger family to see those two boys as anything other than evil monsters. I, I would never try to change their opinion. If it happened to me, if it happened to you, mm. I would feel exactly the same way. I, I would never try to to change their view on it or their opinion. I do think for the, the rest of the world that it is important to just take a step back from the case 
and look at it from a wider point of view to try and understand why these boys did it and, and not just dismiss them as being evil because mm. if you want to prevent it from happening in the future, the only way you can do it is if you understand the cause of it. And part, the reason we know their names today is interesting because I I could never understand why the judge decided to release the names. But then I, I listened to what he said in his reasoning to release their names. It was because he wanted people to look into this case, to examine their backgrounds, so that they can learn from it, yeah. so that it never happens again. But that hasn't happened. Instead, it just made them targets, uh, hate figures, and anybody who says any different becomes a hate figure too. <sighs> yeah, people haven't learned from the case. They haven't really looked into it. And and that was part of the reason I wanted to make the film, so that it could start something, you know. But, yeah. but the first step is, is to look at them as human beings. It, it, the film doesn't have all the answers, and I've never said it does, no. but you know, I think it allows people to ask the right questions. Uh, has it turned you off filmmaking, or are you more determined than ever to push your career forward? <laughs> Definitely, it hasn't turned me off filmmaking, okay. no. Good, good, I'm um, glad, I'm glad. No, um, you know, I've always been fascinated by true stories, though, as well, and, and I, I'd like to continue to tell true stories. Mm. I might pick a slightly less controversial yes. one. Yes. Anyway, so, do you yeah, know what? I, thank you for coming yeah, on this. Thanks a lot. Thank you for coming on this show. I, I would just, I don't mind nailing my colours to the mask. I understand a lot of the outrage on this against you. I also think you've been very brave. I also think you face it down very well. I also think you are contrite. And I also think your movie's important and very important and is exceptionally well made. And thank you for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. It was really great chatting with you. Thanks, Phil.